In the seventh season of this podcast, we'll be looking at five great films that have something interesting to tell us about ourselves and our place in the world. You know, from hand shadows on the back of cave walls, to the zoetrope, to the Lumiere brothers, what we now call film has certainly come a long way. There's just no denying the kind of sensory impact films have on us. After all, cinema comes from the Greek word kinema, which means movement. And that's what they are. They're moving pictures. Anyway, I think it's pretty obvious that film is the most engaging and intense of all the arts. As the great Ingmar Bergman said, no art passes our conscience in the way that film does and goes directly to our feelings, deep down into the dark room of our souls. Well, we wouldn't have it any other way, would we? This is the wisdom of... And this is episode 5, Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon. getting into the, the film itself, I wanted to talk about something that was, I don't know, it was very shockingly close to Rashomon, uh, close in terms of time, uh, the end of World War II. It was just five, like really short years between the end of that war and the release of this film. Uh, World War II, the most horrific, appalling confluence of events in, in probably human history. Without cataloging everything, specifically, we have just unbelievable Japanese atrocities that were committed, switching them, the Japanese, becoming the victims of the only use of atomic weapons in warfare. Yet, despite all that, I'm just constantly shocked by how quickly the United States of America and Japan became friendly, if not friends. Like they, they went from total war to this kind of strange chummy behavior, a 180 degree turn on a dime. Now, real historians might take umbrage at my just oversimplification of the whole thing. And I'm sure people in Korea, the Philippines or China will completely take issue with how much and how fast Japan actually changed. But from the point of view of a Western simpleton, it's, it's remarkable. And with all my biases, all my limitations, it's the story I'll tell. Others will tell it differently. So this all leads me to, yeah, so what is Rashomon about? Yeah, everyone has a different story, right? And that's obviously a, a nice lead in here. So what is Rashomon about? Well... As usual then, let me give a very brief summary. So, Rashomon is a groundbreaking 1950 film directed by the master Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa. 
It's about four people recounting their versions of the incident of a samurai's murder and the rape of his wife in a forest. In other words, much of the film relates to the use of flashbacks, four versions of the crime. What's truly puzzling, however, is that the participants and describers of the crime each tell a completely different story. And so we're left with confounding and almost contradictory statements. No surprise, of course, the popular legal term, the Rashomon effect, is named after this film. And for those of you who don't know, the Rashomon effect is an expression used to describe how a a single event can be recounted in a variety of ways due to the unreliability of multiple witnesses. An unreliability which is the result of situational, social, and cultural differences. Rashomon the film has been an influence on countless movies, including um, Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs and the 1995's The Usual Suspects. So I, I'm, I'm sure this is not unique to me, but I have a disturbingly long list of words, phrases, expressions that just make my skin crawl. Like uh, problematic. I find the word problematic to be problematic. Sorry, not sorry, or I'm going to speak my truth are just nails on a chalkboard. Now, to be fair, we could add on from YouTubers or podcasters, uh, please subscribe, hit like, rate and review, and then they'll follow it up, you know, in a more solemn tone. I really hate to ask, but it really does help. Now, that said, seriously, please do all those things I mentioned. It really does help. Now, most will find what I just did there annoying. Some might find it ever so droll. Others will have the perspective that I I hid my true desire there under a veil of detached irony. I think most people only half heard the story, so they're just waiting for the good stuff to start on this episode. So there are so many perspectives, so many possibilities on a single thing that I just said. So doing this far from as artfully as Rashomon did, in this film we get different perspectives, relativism, and how much these two things do they dovetail with ideas of truth. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the expression speaking my truth either. But you're right. In this film, we we definitely do get introduced to the idea of relativism. So maybe more specifically, I think one thing that Kurosawa is getting us to see in this film, through all the, the flashbacks, is that we're all limited in our perspectives. That's to say that we can never have the whole truth. That truth is always, at best, partial. I mean, after all, who has fully known the mind of the Lord, right? To quote St. Paul. No, even if we think we're telling the one true version, because we're finite and because we're living beings, there's no other way to know something than to know it partly, if at all. Actually, you know what? If this is what Kurosawa believes, then he comes very close to something Nietzsche would say about truth. Okay, so according to Nietzsche, there's no absolute knowledge which transcends all our possible perspectives. In other words, for him, 
there's no such thing as a view emanating from no specific location that can represent things as they really are. There's no view from nowhere. Knowledge is always constrained by our locations and perspectives. Now, one important reason he gives for this is the fact that we are, well, biological beings trying to make our way in the world. And as these sorts of beings, beings with a certain um, physiology and certain aims, we're just not built to seek disinterested objective knowledge. That's to say, we always have an inherently conditional relation to things, a relation that presupposes specific values, interests, and desires. In other words, we all can't help but to take up perspectives on things in which either our potential is going to be realized, or our desires satisfied, or our instincts expressed. In some broad sense, you could say that for Nietzsche, truth is what has survival value. Actually, you know what? It's really interesting. Nietzsche goes on to argue that sometimes certain dominant perspectives forget that they're perspectives and that they're rooted in desires and needs, and instead they claim to be truths. He calls holders of such perspectives dogmatists and metaphysicians. And his most repeated example here is, well, Christianity. You see, Christianity claims it's the truth and nothing but the truth, when really its origin has been forgotten. An origin rooted in, well, you guessed it, desires its propagators wanted to satisfy and strategies they wanted to manifest in the world, all for their own survival and flourishing. Anyway, at at the end of the day, for, for Nietzsche, all we have are a multiplicity of perspectives. Truth doesn't exist as an ideal beyond these. There's nothing independent of interpretation. But here you you might be thinking, but if all there is is perspective and interpretation, then how can we come to really know anything? Well, according to Nietzsche, it actually turns out to be the case that the, the more perspectives, the more eyes, so to speak, we can use to observe one thing, the more complete our knowledge or understanding of that thing will be. I mean, a sunset is a refraction of light, but it's also a dazzling glow of colors, right? To insist on one rather than the other is to be, well, a dogmatist. It's to claim that a scientific view trumps an aesthetic one. But no, for Nietzsche, if truth is anything at all, it's a combination of all views added up together however seemingly ununified they may seem. Maybe one way of thinking about it is like this. Truth isn't, say, four sides of a story that produce a square. No, rather, truth is the combination of these perspectives that produces something uneven and odd-looking, like a rhombus. Anyway, so this is why perspectivism, according to Nietzsche, can actually give us a more nuanced and rich awareness of the world than any kind of dogmatism can. Yeah, 
okay. So going back to what you were just saying about Nietzsche, that everyone has these needs, which they mask is absolute truth. Isn't this what's really fundamentally going on in Rashomon? Yeah, actually, I think something like this is right. After all, Kurosawa, when asked by his assistants to explain his script, replied, quote, Human beings are unable to be honest with themselves, about themselves. They cannot talk about themselves without embellishing. This script portrays such human beings, the kind who cannot survive without lies to make them feel they are better people than they really are. End of quote. Now, this is pretty revealing, and it says a lot about the characters in the film and the particular accounts they provide of the crime. They all manipulate the details differently, all for self-interested reasons, like maybe to protect their reputations, or to exonerate themselves, or to come out as better people, or even to not face certain uncomfortable facts about themselves. And because of this, they all, whether consciously or unconsciously, don't offer truthful versions of the event, even though they say or think that they are. You know, for some reason, I'm reminded a bit of Schopenhauer here. So he has this uh, funny anecdote where he's talking about what happens sometimes when we're adding up our finances. It often turns out, he says, that we make mistakes more frequently to our advantage than to our disadvantage, and not because we're always dishonest but because of our unconscious tendency to diminish our debt and increase our credit. Now, the point is that for Schopenhauer, we're far from pure reasoning beings who seek unbiased evidence. We don't understand and perceive things purely in a transparent way. No, our emotions, our fears and insecurities, and our will to want to succeed all obscures and falsifies our knowledge and description of things. In other words, our memories are shaped by our fantasies, and how we understand the world is largely governed by our own aims, instincts, and emotional needs. So, we just can't really be honest. It contradicts our nature to see things impartially. We lie for self-serving reasons. We're imprisoned by our instinct for self-preservation. All this is basically what the commoner character in the film means when he says, quote, Well, men are only men. That's why they lie. End of quote. Actually, apart from what the characters in Rashomon are made to say, I also think Kurosawa symbolizes this psychological messiness and dishonesty with his shots in the forest, which are some of the most sensuous and shadowy in the history of cinema. That's to say, when the camera delves deeper into the forest, it embodies the dark labyrinths where the human heart loses its way, where the light of truth becomes obscured, and where we begin to find ourselves within a different world. Actually, I don't think Schopenhauer says this, but you know, sometimes I wonder if we're this way too, that's to say, you know, biased or dishonest, when it comes to our moral intentions and behavior. 
I mean, it often seems as if our moral values are used as marks of distinction. In other words, we do what's right so as to appreciate the value of self or to, um, I don't know, accrue a kind of ego credit. Anyway, I think Jesus certainly noticed something like this. I mean, that's why he counseled us, among other things, not to let our left hand know what our right hand was doing and to take the plank out of our own eye before removing the speck from our brother's eye. So something that's been brought up before in this podcast, and absolutely no disrespect to Stephen Colbert and his current late-night talk show job, but it doesn't come anywhere near the quality the the yucks the the bite of his old show the Colbert Report and what it offered. Of course, the most famous thing coming out of this would be truthiness. That idea that something could have the veneer of truth, while maybe not being in full possession of pesky facts. Truthiness was unveiled. I don't know. It feels so recent, but it was all the way back in two thousand five. And without getting into some extremely obvious specifics, that idea, and likewise similar ideas that are presented in Rashomon, are alarmingly more relevant today than ever. Yeah, alarmingly more relevant today is right. So before I get into that, let me try to say something about Kurosawa himself and the context in which he produced the film, because I think it'll be relevant. So Of course, World War II had a large impact on Kurosawa. I mean, that's no surprise given all the carnage and suffering he had witnessed and heard about in Japan. I mean, he lived there while it was happening. But I think what really got him, got him angry about the war, something I think you intimated in your intro earlier, were all the lies being told by the Japanese officials and their heavy use of propaganda prior to and during the war. I mean, one thing that Japan said was that its campaign through Asia was a virtuous one, that it was meant to do good for and liberate all of Asia. Anyway, it turned out that after the war, many Japanese citizens were disgusted with their former leader's lies and misinformation, Kurosawa among them. And so what Rashomon partly is, a film completed six years after the war, is a film that encapsulates his personal experience of watching lies and false information take over a country and the sort of devastation that dishonesty brings in its wake. Now, this is, of course, symbolized by the the Rashomon Gate, which opens the film, which is all destroyed and desolate. In other words, in making this film, Kurosawa is indirectly commenting on the the ruins of war and the cultural rot of years of war propaganda. In any case, the point is that when we falsify information, there just will be grave consequences. And I think this is the most important message to take away from the film. When we lie and deceive due to ego, vanity, and self-promotion, and make truth difficult to find, we make a hell out of the world. And like you said, surely all of this is as topical today as ever. 
No. In our ridiculous and embarrassing post-truth fake news era, where subjective experience and objective fact are constantly being muddled and conflated, where everyone makes themselves their own Archimedean point of truth, where there's no reality beyond my own solipsistic bubble, where politics is largely about a web of lies and spin, and where everyone parrots their particular ideologies, talking points, without reflection. So many, it seems, are contributing to this social chaos of lies and deceit. And what we're in effect creating is a world with a a perpetually shifting landscape, and so a world without trust and traction. And so eventually a world that will dissolve into, well, nothingness. So what do we do? Well, in Rashomon, Kurosawa provokes us with a a strange ending. He gives us a crying, abandoned baby. So notice that the film begins with death, but it ends with a birth, the finding of that infant at the same gate. So, what does the baby symbolize for Kurosawa? Well, I'm not sure, but maybe the hope that we can learn to see past ourselves for what's good and true and right. I mean, babies lack the sort of egoism and selfishness that dissimulation and the distortion of truth is a consequence of, right? But now that I think about it, I think the appearance of the baby symbolizes one more very important thing, and that is responsibility. Okay, so hear me out for a second here. Let's remember that the woman in the story was raped by a bandit. Now, obviously her baby, if we assume she got pregnant, couldn't have been born so soon after this happened to her. It just doesn't make sense from a logical point of view. However, What if we view it symbolically? So, from this point of view, the abandoned baby at the end of the film represents the consequence of that original transgression. Actually, it's interesting. If you look closely, you notice that beside the baby is an amulet. The case for which the, the woman earlier in the film is seen with. Anyway, the point is then that when the woodcutter character accepts the baby, and decides to raise it with his own children, Kurosawa is in effect signaling to us that we can all and must begin to take responsibility for, um, own up to, our past lies and transgressions. When we think it doesn't matter if we lie and deceive, then we abandon the world and leave orphans everywhere. The first step to a a better world is to stop this carelessness with respect to truth and realize that what we say has consequences, consequences that we ignore at our own collective peril. Okay, 
So that concludes Season 7. I hope you found some of it interesting. So what's next? Well, I think we're going to go back to our roots. Back to all the great literature out there. And the theme in Season 8, well, it's going to be tragedy. So what's first on the list? Well, here's a hint. Nothing happens. Nobody comes. Nobody goes. It's awful. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.